tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Dean Jarris Hedges has been at the helm of the University of Hawaii John A. Burns School of Medicine since 2008. He recently announced plans to step down next spring. We invited him into our studios to reflect on how far the school has come over the last decade and a half. Dean Hedges was trained as an emergency physician and was honored in 2013 by the Hawaii Medical Association as Physician of the Year. You may not know he grew up on a family farm in Washington State. He says he developed a sense of humility from his early days. His parents grew up in the Depression and worked through World War II. The family moved from the Midwest to the Pacific Northwest to find a better life. It's not much different than the story of many immigrants who live in the islands. In this past month, the National Institutes for Health awarded the school $22.5 million to further study health disparities among Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders for things like diabetes, heart disease, and long COVID. Dean Hedges is one of the principal investigators on the research. He explains where the money will go. The medical school has served as the home base for this project, but it's really a collective project of all the health science units at UH Manoa and also working with UH Hilo's College of Pharmacy. It has two components. One is to do some very key research projects that look at areas of what we call health disparities, where some members of our community have shorter lifespans or heavy disease burden, and we look for how we can extend lifespan and provide better equity in health outcomes. We have specific projects we work on, and we also have support to provide resources for young investigators to come together as multidisciplinary teams to work to solve problems. So for this particular project, which will be about $22.5 million over five years coming into Hawaii, my multiple principal investigator, the co-lead with me, is Noreen Mokoao, the former dean of the Thompson School of Social Work and Public Health. She and I have worked with a team of leaders in our respective units to identify three projects. One will be a community-based project looking at the health benefits of home aquaponics, and we'll be focusing on how we can bring this mechanism of raising one's own food in the home to some of our Native Hawaiian communities, many of whom live in areas that are food deserts, whether it's very hard to get fresh food to their homes. So this engages the family. In fact, it engages the whole community because in each community, we put several of these aquaponic units. And then we will look at the impact on their life activities, exercise, nutrition, and so forth to see what impact this has had. The other project, which is very topical, is one that's looking at the long-term effects of COVID, in particular on pulmonary function, because we know a number of individuals who've suffered from COVID end up with chronic fatigue, difficulty breathing, and are really struggling to get by. And we don't know how long these effects will last. In some cases, they've had them for more than two years if they acquired the disease early in the pandemic. So we're looking at some of the underlying inflammation that goes along with this and looking at what other factors in one's life may have contributed to a less desirable outcome, and then trying to see how we can change our approach to treating COVID to help individuals better. Uh, The third project is 
actually looking at a really novel finding that we've discovered here in Hawaii that relates to little packets of proteins that our muscles release during exercise. And we know that some people benefit in terms of weight maintenance and weight loss through exercise better than others. And we suspect that the way these protein packets are formed and released and the impact that they have on the body during and after exercise probably plays a role into why certain individuals benefit more from exercise versus others. And maybe we can change the nature of how we form those packets and really get the benefit of exercise to everyone in general. So that's that's a more basic science project looking at the fundamental mechanisms whereby our physiology contributes to our health. Will that have any ethnicity component at all? Well, we do know that Polynesian cultures do not get as much of a benefit from exercise. And so we were, were going to first look with an animal study at this mechanism in terms of the type of exercise and the degree of exercise with how these packets are formed. And then we'll move that into looking at different groups to see how they form these what we call exosomes, these packets of proteins that are released. So it's a multi-stage, multi-year project. We're just now trying to understand the science of it so that we can then take it to the different individuals and, and see what will help them the most. Now, you know, you've been in charge of the, the uh, medical school now for, what, 15 years. During that time, the university has gained some recognition for its research and for the type of training that we provide our, our young doctors. Yes, and I'm very pleased. Obviously, it takes a village. I can't take full credit for this. But I do want to point out a couple of milestones. When I came, our school was approximately ranked 102 out of 110 medical schools at that time. Now there's over 180 medical schools, and we're in the top quartile, the top 25 We've been there three out of the last five years. We're recognized nationally, and we've always had wonderful students trained here in Hawaii. But because we're in the Pacific, there's not as much media coverage, we just don't get the same national recognition. But by doing more in the research sphere, and so these projects, like I mentioned, Ola Hawaii, that's been sponsored by the National Institute of Health, through its National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities branch, we've been able to bring the the level of awareness of what we're doing in terms of science and also the quality of our trainees. And so we've also been strengthening the network of our graduates out in uh, not only here in Hawaii but also on the continent. We think that that helps because we know that we don't have as many training programs as we need here in Hawaii, so many of our learners have to go to the continent to complete their training so they can be licensed and then come back uh, to Hawaii. So we're working very hard to make sure that we have opportunities for them to return and practice here in Hawaii. During COVID, we had the opportunity to connect with two doctors that were educated at at JABSIM that were from the Marshall Islands. One of them was uh, working in Arkansas. Yes, Dr. Rickland. Yes, and then one on the Big Island. I guess that was a very important asset 
to the communities because the people that were affected were disproportionately Marshallese in Arkansas. And I, and I know there were tremendous efforts by that community to kind of educate everybody. So, you know, those kinds of things where you're, you're reaching out to build up those specific island communities and help to graduate doctors. Yeah. Would we be doing more of that? We participate in two federal programs. They're both called Area Health Education Centers. One's focused on the Hawaiian Islands, and the other is focused on the greater Pacific in the U.S. trust territories. And so that is one program, and we have another program through the National NIH related to kidney disease that also is designed to help prepare students from our Pacific Islands for a career in health sciences. And so we have been doing those programs for now over 20 years. We send instructors and we train instructors who live in those communities about what they can do to make science relevant to the students there and to encourage them to apply for health careers. We work closely, of course, with Guam and the University of Guam and other partners but we also provide a preferred entrance into our medical school and our health programs here in Hawaii, specifically because we know that when you develop health conditions in the Pacific, you're most likely going to come to Hawaii and need assistance here. So the more that we can train the providers locally and so that they can work effectively with our providers, the better health care we'll have and the, the better able to treat conditions earlier. So yes, we're going to continue those programs. This uh, year's program, which is called a, a post-baccalaureate program, there are imihoola, meaning those who seek to heal, takes individuals who have some social or economic disadvantages. They have completed a bachelor's degree and they're trying to get into medical school. We take a cadre in and if they complete our post-baccalaureate, they're guaranteed entrance into our medical school. Two of our current post-baccalaureate students are from Guam, and we have several from Guam and other Pacific Islands in the medical school at this time. So it's part of our mission. That was Dr. Jaris Hedges, Dean of the University of Hawaii Medical School, and we'll continue to hear more of our conversation with him about the challenges of a physician shortage as well as the high cost of tuition. But it is the first Monday of the month, so we do have to take a pause from regular programming for a test of the emergency alert system. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the outrigger Waikiki. Jazz guitarist Al DiMiola performs songs such as Broken Heart in two sets nightly this Thursday and Friday. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. Behind every program you hear on HPR is a team that's dedicated to bringing you the essential listening you rely on. From news and information to Hawaiian music with everything in between on HPR One, and classical music 24 hours a day on HPR2. Your $10 a month donation to this nonprofit radio station helps support the people behind your favorite programs. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providing auto insurance since 1911, committed to delivering personalized service to residents throughout the islands. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, FICOH.com. 
You know, we started out the hour with a part of a conversation with Dr. Jarris Hedges, who is the dean of the John A. Burns School of Medicine in Kankaako. We were talking about the rise in rankings of the school. In the last three years, it's moved up in the top 25% of med schools, not just for research, but in its primary care training. We were also discussing what the school is doing to deal with the rising cost of tuition and the shortage of doctors. We're doing two things. One, I mentioned the scholarship program with the service payback. But the other is we've been doing a loan repayment program. And so Dr. Kelly Withy, who heads up our Area Health Education Center, has also applied for support from our federal government. And we're uh, able to, working with our legislature, to use state monies and obtain a federal one-to-one match. So we are now paying off educational debt, not only for physicians, but also for nursing students and nurse practitioners who are working in some of the most difficult to recruit areas in Hawaii. So it's it's an important program. I'm just really pleased First of all, with the ohana that we developed at the school, it's a very supportive community. We have such strong ties and commitments to the community beyond the university uh, that, you know, that is very heartwarming. It's very gratifying. Uh, I've worked in different academic institutions. They've all had an important mission to train and expand knowledge. But we're doing that with a focus on Hawaii and in an area where resources are less available. And so every day, it's a, it's a search for resources. And we have to do that through strong collaboration. And I, it's one of the things I've observed about the University of Hawaii is on some levels, there's cooperation and collaboration. But on other levels, we've sort of been compartmentalized for too long. And I've been working with my colleagues in nursing, social work, pharmacy, and trying to build programs that will allow us to bridge the health sciences and work together more effectively. And seeing those bridges and what we've been able to produce, we have a Hawaii interprofessional education or hype program that is really focused around geriatric education, and it brings folks together to work through scenarios as as a team. So our nursing students, nurse practice students, me- medical residents and medical students, along with pharmacists and social workers, get together and they solve problems together, just like it was a real world uh, case using a, a simulation environment. Very innovative, We've gotten federal dollars as well as the Robert Wood Johnson Corporation to support it. But what it's done is just dramatically changed how we work together as health professionals in the educational sphere, in the research sphere, and now we're seeing it in the clinical practice setting. Um, Just a quick antidote. When we did our very first class with the School of Nursing, where we brought nursing students and medical students together, I literally had faculty from the School of Nursing crying. They said, We've waited 20 years to see the medical school reach out. Now our students are learning together. Yeah. <laughs> and you think that's a no-brainer, right? Right. Why didn't we do it sooner? But it didn't happen before. So, you know, as you get ready to, to retire, 
uh, I don't know. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, I've, um, I've got a number of things that I would mm-hmm. like to, to do. The usual sort of uh, kind of spend some time uh, learning about some things that I had to put on the side and a little bit of travel. But the other important thing is this Ola Hawaii grant, uh, I'll continue to be engaged with that. I will continue to do some mentoring with some of the faculty uh, at the medical school that have sought me out. So I'll, I'll keep engaged. Uh, I, I, I love Hawaii. It's, it's uh, the place I want to be. And uh, the, the university gives you so many opportunities to uh, give to the community. So I, I expect to continue doing that. The pandemic caused me to sort of rethink my timeline and, and to rethink what we were doing. And, of course, my colleagues and I at the medical school had to do a lot of things different. We had to improvise a lot in terms of how we were going to teach students during this time, keeping them safe making sure that they didn't uh, interfere with care delivery as learners, but yet allowing them the opportunity to learn and allowing them the opportunity to work with patients. So we improvise a great deal, and our students, I think, are probably as well-trained as anywhere in the U.S., and we were able to get them back into the clinical setting early because of this ability to adapt and change. You know, this Interprofessional work is just, it can't be understated. As we look at trying to address the physician shortage, we know that we're not going to be able to train sufficient physicians such that all of one's care can be guided by a physician directly. But rather, we'll have to have teams and we'll have to uh, train a whole cadre of healthcare providers as part of that team. The health systems are beginning to move in that direction. So Kaiser, Queens Health System, Hawaii Pacific Health, Adventist Castle, they're already making adjustments in that, in that manner. But uh, we need to look at how we can help that evolve in some of our other community settings. And we do a fair amount of work with federally qualified health centers. They have begun to develop a portfolio of providers as well. And we're looking for ways that we can help them weather some of the the changes that we have. Uh, But this is a, a major focus. The other thing that which I, I think I should bring up that's been a, a big part of what we've been doing collectively is uh, addressing the needs of aging our aging population. So one of the realities is we're losing healthcare workers in part because they're aging and retiring, and there aren't as many of the younger generation coming from behind. So there'll be a large number of us baby boomers to care for. So we have to come up with mechanisms for that to happen. And so the interprofessional uh, approach is key. But there's uh, other elements of this that have required us to sort of rethink what are our priorities and um, how do we bring the, the most life into our years rather than simply adding years to our life. We already have significant advantages uh, compared to the rest of the nation in terms of longevity, but how do we keep those years as productive as possible? Address the threat of cognitive decline in dementia, uh, address the problems with heart failure and pulmonary disease, which limit one's uh, ability to, to function. So we're, we're looking at, you know, how do we improve people's health as they age and keep them active. And I think that's an area that can be a future emphasis for Hawaii 
And again, it will take more than the medical school. It will take a lot of our disciplines working together. And I think it should be a focus of the University of Hawaii as our premier uh, premier uh, teaching institution. You know, I know that UH is going through their strategic plan. I guess as, as you look to step down, what do you think the next med school dean you know, ought to be looking at? The next med school dean will, will need to probably juggle uh, all of the things that I've uh, had to juggle. Um, it's been uh, very interesting because I had a wonderful opportunity to work with many people at the legislature, not only uh, the legislators themselves, but also those who uh, informed the legislators. And the next dean's going to have to be facile at that to keep uh, our legislators informed. They're going to need to have access and be able to communicate with the next governor to make sure that they're doing their part to help the health of our state. And they're going to have to work with a lot of entities, uh, both within and outside of um, the, the, the university. Um, so it's going to take take a, a person who's almost a renaissance individual. Do, do you think that we, there should be more of an emphasis on the, I don't know, the telehealth thing that emerged during the pandemic? Telehealth is critical to our future plans. It won't solve everything, but it is a major step forward. We have developed uh, approaches where doctors would only be reimbursed or clinics would only be reimbursed for patients who would come in physically. But we knew during the pandemic that was not only some added health risk, but also very inconvenient for the individual. So by getting our mindset different, where we say, hey, we can deliver knowledge and information to the patient and their family while they're at home, I think, you know, we've sort of changed the paradigm for the future. The challenge we have, though, is there are certain things you cannot do through a telehealth um, effort. That's limited. Now, one of the things that we may want to think about in the future is we have a tendency to train people sort of uniformly to do a thousand different things. We may want to think about training physicians on the very basics of telehealth but then have a, a cadre that are essentially folks who specialize in doing telehealth. So they can become quite skilled, manage multiple patients, and be facile with the technology. Another group might be then assigned to do more of the in-person interaction and to do some of the procedural work that needs to be done. And that way we can sort of specialize the type of practice some people might w just be great uh, on the telehealth side, whereas others really want to have that close personal contact. So having the option there, I think, will help us in the future. Where, where we struggled during the pandemic was everybody had to have some element of telehealth, and it was a very steep learning curve for people to transfer their knowledge into the telehealth environment. But it's not going to go away. You're absolutely right. It's a part of our future solutions. That was Dean Jarris Hedges, who sat down with us last week to talk about the future of the medical school. Hedges, who is the highest paid employee in the UH system, steps down in March of next year. He says he feels good about how during the pandemic, the medical school faculty had been able to strengthen its relationship with hospital doctors clinically and academically. And Hedges isn't going away completely, as he is one of two principal investigators awarded a $22 million research grant to study health disparities in our community. Music
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Gibson, author of The Complete Guide to Sound Healing. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how sound affects us physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Honolulu Civil Beat featured a story this weekend that has hit a nerve. It's about an energy microgrid for the island of Lanai. Reporter Paula Dobbin joins us today. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. So share with our listeners, this story is about how Larry Ellison wants to get off the grid. Yes. um, Mr. Ellison, uh, as you may know, is one of the world's uh, richest men, and he owns uh, 98% of Lanai. And um, he has two resorts on that island that consume about 40% of all the power um, that's generated there. And he wants to move them off the grid uh, that's owned by Hawaiian Electric. So he's proposing to build his own microgrid, take those resorts uh, offline. And, um, you know, it's obviously a way to be more environmentally friendly because these will be powered by, you know, photovoltaics and batteries. But I guess the big question for many people is what's this going to do to the uh, prices that Lanai residents pay? Um, You know, they already pay the highest rates in Hawaii and um, about 400 uh, times the average U.S. rate. So it's extremely costly energy. And if this plan for the microgrid goes through, many are wondering, like, what the rates are going to go up to um, in that scenario. So that's what's going on. Yeah, and I understand that Hawaiian Electric uh, had some concerns about this uh, proposal. Yes, um, they alerted the um, Public Utilities Commission um, as to what's going on, and um, they say that it's not the first time that um, Ellison's company, it's called Pulama Lanai, um, has made this proposal. It did so a couple years ago, but it it abandoned the plan at that point, Uh, but now it's back. Um, and as a result, Hawaiian Electric is going to put a pause on uh, the construction of a, a solar um, energy plant that they were already planning. So that's, uh, you know, because they don't know if it's going to pencil out at this point. Uh, so that plan is now on hold. And, um, you know, at this point, the residents of Lanai are just kind of waiting to hear what's next. Because uh, according to one of the men that I interviewed, a, a local resident there, he said that, uh, this was the first he'd heard of the plan, and as far as he knew, that uh, Ellison's company hasn't told residents anything yet. So uh, just a lot of questions, um, but mostly about how this is going to affect um, people's pocketbooks, uh, the people who are not the resort visitors. Yeah, you have to wonder, I mean, if this is a on-again, off-again, on-again, um, you know, what prompted this change? And, you know, like all your readers are wondering, what happens to the residents? You know, are they going to be um, stuck? Yeah, it was hard to get any information out of um, Ellison's company. Um, you know, I, I did put out a query on their website, and uh, a PR professional from Honolulu um, got back to me, you know, and she did confirm that this is in the works. Uh, they hope to have it up and running by uh, 2027. 
Um, and she said it is going to be 100% powered by photovoltaic and uh, battery energy storage systems. Um, I thanked her for that email, and then I wrote her back, and I said, um, you know, does the company have any concerns about how this is going to impact the prices for um, power that the other island residents are going to um, have to pay? And she wrote back and said that there was no comment on that. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, be interesting to see if they'll engage the community to get their input uh, and then uh, what the PUC does at, at this point then uh, with this proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of a guessing game at this point. Um, but, you know, I, a lot of people have reacted to the story. They, they've, you know, written comments. And one of the common themes that seems to be coming through um, of readers is, you know, if Mr. Ellison is so wealthy, um, why doesn't he just, you know, take everybody off the grid on Lanai and, and you know, just donate the power? Um, you know, it seems like he has the the wherewithal to do that financially. So, like, why not just take that step? So we'll see. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. All right. Well, thanks so much, Paula. You bet. Take care. That was reporter Paula Dahmed with today's Reality Check. Check out the story at civilbeat.org. has been grappling with a shortage of school psychologists at a time when children's mental health has been an issue. HBR's Casey Harlow joins us in studio to talk about the situation. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Uh, So today's story uh, kind of was all based on a question that I had, you know, the question of um, what does mental health services look like in public schools? You know, that is such a big, big topic now included with uh, learning loss and also the emotional well-being of students. So I kind of went on this journey of interviewing uh, school psychologists and also uh, counselors at schools. And one of the people that I talked to was Alec Morantic. He's a school psychologist based in Pahoa. And uh, I kind of wanted to ask him, like, what does this look like in schools, the mental uh, health of students? Because we hear about depression and anxiety, but what exactly does that look like? And this is what he had to say. The literature agrees that The pandemic has made, because of the isolation and other associated components with uncertainty, anxiety, mental health challenges have gotten worse. However, we also saw some data come out when we were kind of partway through that there was more evidence to suggest that the levels we thought we were at prior to the pandemic were worse than what we thought that they were. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, that was kind of eye-opening for me. Uh, And one of the more uh, impacted age groups are pretty much what he uh, says are primary aged kids, you know, preschool, kindergarten. They have less social skills, which can lead to behavior problems and difficulty communicating. And to kind of back this uh, up is uh, Nikki Kiliona. She's a counselor at YNI High School. Uh, I also interviewed Desiree DeSoto, who's a counselor at YNI Elementary. And both of them agree that, you know, this is what they're seeing within their schools and within the students. And Nick uh, Kiliona says she's seeing this, especially because she's a 10th grade academic advisor. uh, But she also helps out with, you know, builds those relationships with the students and helps them work out their uh, needs. But this was the interaction that she had with a student fairly recently. 
you know, I had a 10th grader run away from me the other day and I thought I was being punked. I was like, oh my God, is someone filming me? I was escorting him and he ran. And I was like, what the hell is happening? So you can tell that the kids aren't at their level and it's scary. The child to adult relationship is weird. Like we're not even authority here. Like you can tell like kids don't respect adults like how it used to be. So also pretty eye-opening. But uh, what I also found out are that counselors are usually the go-to sources here uh, for, um, you know, the student needs of mental health and, you know, the behavioral well-being, emotional well-being. And so they're starting to feel a strain, it seems like, because they're being heavily relied on not only by students but also, you know, staff. And in some cases, like in YNI, the community as well. But – this led me down another road of what else is out there. And so I recalled that the Keiki Caucus introduced a measure earlier, uh, actually last earlier this year, sorry, <laughs> kind of uh, getting that time down, uh, trying to get a school psychologists licensed here in the state. That measure ultimately did not uh, get approved. Uh, there was some questions regarding uh, who will uh, license these uh, school psychologists and um, also whether or not a study was needed, because that is under the state constitution, to um, basically create a new profession within the state or a new regulated profession within the state. Um, And so what I found was that uh, Alec Morantic, who's also with uh, the Hawaii Association of School Psychologists, said that there's a shortage of these professionals. Uh, there's There was roughly 60 to 61 psychologists that are working within public, public and charter schools. And the National Association of School Psychologists uh, have this ratio uh, where it was one psychologist for every 500 students. But uh, what Hawaii is having is one psychologist for every 2,900 students. And so that creates a bit of a strain as well. But there's several factors as far as the um, school psychologists being used within schools. Um, Morantic says that, you know, in his experience, uh, staff at schools, it's kind of based on how comfortable maybe the districts are uh, with including them in the school or uh, whether or not the principals are kind of open to the idea of it. And that's based on maybe they don't know what exactly a school psychologist does. There's also that shortage, which I mentioned earlier, and that is based on pay and also the licensing. Uh, So um, I spoke with Leslie Bonick, who's a board member of HASP, and she said this about the pay. We have a really hard time recruiting and retaining school psychologists. And also because our contracts aren't negotiated with the Department of Education, what happens is we don't pay very much either comparatively with the high cost of living. So our ratios are way too high. We're pigeonholed into doing more of those special education evaluations. And we haven't seen the number of school psychologists increase in pretty much since we have started in the state. Our position came out of the Felix Consent Decree because it didn't exist before that. So the federal government literally came in and said, you have to have these Hawaii. And so the Felix uh, Consent Decree was basically the outcome of a 1993 class action lawsuit against the state. Uh, U.S. District Court found the state violated two federal laws not providing uh, the system of educational and mental health services for children with disabilities. And the state has held was held in contempt in 2000. So basically... Uh, what Bonnick has been saying is that they haven't really seen a lot of effort in growing the school psychologists uh, since then. Yeah, well, we need to work on that, don't we? But we thank do. you so much, Casey. Thanks. 
We have been chatting with HPR's Casey Harlow. Check out his story on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island. Traditional Chinese Erhu violinist Sun Hui with Pierre Grill and Wade Camburn perform as the band Shangri-La October 9th. KahiluTheater.org, also on demand. Can our minds heal from psychological trauma the way our bodies heal from physical trauma? What types of treatments might help? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about how a therapy called EMDR might just be the answer. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. You know, we're officially into October, and if you're a bibliophile, you probably know that this is National Book Month. One book recently published in our islands is the historical fiction novel Olohana in the Service of the King. It tells the story of real-life sailor John Young, who was a crew member aboard the American ship Eleonora, who was left behind in our islands by his captain in the late 1700s. Young was given the name Olohana by the Hawaiians and became an important military advisor to King Kamehameha I during the formation of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Kevin William O'Leary is the author of the novel. He stopped by our studio recently to talk with the conversation's Russell Subiano about the challenges of writing fiction based on historical events. I think a lot of people are familiar with John Young and Isaac Davis and their story and their descendants. How did you come across this story? And what about the story interested you enough to write a novel about it? I think it's one of those stories, you know, history is, is made up of accidents. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was just when I first heard about it. And then I do want to mention Emmett Cahill's excellent book, yeah. John Young, which is a source, one of many sources I used. Before I read that book, I heard about it, and just the idea that, okay, well, in the 18th century, the world was much bigger than it is today. To yep. get here from Lancashire, England, where John Young was from, you got to add several thousand miles to the journey that you take on a jet today from here to England, right? right. You've got to go around the Horn. So the distances were enormous, and yet these two people, Kamehameha I and John Young, were thrown together, and circumstance put them together. But it could have been just something that didn't work or ended in another way, but it became an alliance. They became very close. John Young was there the day the king died. He really never left his side. He was a big political figure after King Kamehameha unified the islands. He was the governor of Hawaii Island. He was the governor of Oahu. He built the fort at Honolulu, the old fort of Fort Street fame. So I just thought it was these two people coming together, one born in a time when they only knew one thing, and it was what they call Stone Age culture because it had no metal and modern anything. And then the Hawaiians being the Hawaiians, so adaptable, the two ideas of somebody really super smart politician like Kamehameha seeing this Howley guy and being able to say, hey, I can use this guy. 
And I think the two cultures coming together, the two time periods coming together, it was just fascinating. In the time that you've lived here, I think you've probably seen a kind of surge of Hawaiian pride and Hawaiian renaissance. And I think today, probably more than ever, it's important to Hawaiians that people see our history correctly and people see it accurately. During your research for the book, how important was it to get the events correct? Even though this is fiction, there's a lot of truth to it. Extremely important. And probably the, the most nerve-wracking thing and the big question I still have is how will Hawaiians in particular take this book? I'm not Hawaiian. I don't know how they'll take it. I have Hawaiian friends and they have read it and they quote-unquote liked it, but people, you know, people to your face, you know how that goes, I'm sure. So now that it's out in the public, I wait to have it reviewed, hopefully by a Hawaiian reviewer, perhaps someone from UH. So to answer your question, I tried to get it as accurate as I could. But, for example, all of John Young's, just to put the Hawaiian side aside for just a second, all of his journals were lost in a flood. So there's nothing, there's just a little day book very, very little material that he actually wrote. He could write. He was a terrible speller. <laughs> but he had these extensive journals, which could have thrown enormous light. He learned Hawaiian, mm-hmm. of course. He was fluent. He and Isaac Davis both had to learn it. They learned it. And so his insights, what we have, if you study the history, all you have before the Christian chroniclers like Kamakau and Malo, before that, all you have are sea captains and what they saw. So starting with Cook, Vancouver, Vancouver who met Young and Davis, you have their accounts, but that's not, you know, what you really need. And then you have all of the things that have been maintained by Hawaiians since then. But as far as we don't have cameras at those days that show what was really going on, it was a pre-literate society. So they usually say history starts when you can write it down. Well, that's not true because there was a strong oral history. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, there's so much we don't know. So there's a certain amount of wiggle room in a piece of fiction like this. But then again, it comes back to the same problem. There's a limit to what you can make up. You make up the dialogue. You imagine the first time that Kamehameha and Young met. No one knows what that looked like. No one recorded it. So that sort of thing, it is up to the author to figure that out and make it fit into a story that's entertaining. It's, it's an entertainment, is right. what, first and foremost. You're not writing a historical biography about John Young. It's historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And and you did have some advisement as you were writing it, right? You did have someone helping you out with Olelo Hawaii and, yes. and, and words, right? Correct, because I have taken Olelo, but I am not fluent in Olelo. So there's a lot of Hawaiian in it. I think there's 70 or 80 Hawaiian words with definitions drawn just from Pukui, you know, established sources. And I did have a Hawaiian language expert look at all the Hawaiian and change it if it was wrong. And I tried to put Hawaiian, a lot of Hawaiian into it. And hopefully by the end of it, a reader like from the mainland might at least know a little bit of Hawaiian coming out of it. Yeah, I think you did a nice job of using Hawaiian words in certain moments and explaining it without it didn't jump out at you but it was very subtle in the way that you use the words and you explain the meaning behind the words it had to be it comes down to the problem of if you watch movies and jason momoa is going to make a movie coming up he's going to play kayana and it's really interesting i don't know what they're going to do but the idea is in a movie to an english-speaking audience speaking english but they're speaking hawaiian Mm -hmm. 
So that's a tricky thing to do on the page, and I really worked hard on trying to figure out exactly how to do that. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what Momo and them, and it's his baby, so fascinating to know. Look forward to seeing that. When I think about Hawaiian history as a whole and how it's taught in schools, I know here it's probably taught more so than outside of Hawaii, but when you look at how Hawaiian history is taught elsewhere in the country, what's your impression of the job that they do conveying our history and our culture? And do you think literature like this helps bring awareness of our history to people who may not be familiar with it? I think potentially it does. Minchner's Hawaii was the first book I ever read about this place, and it got me going. So I think it can maybe even more than just a straight-up history. But as far as how it's taught in the mainland, I have no idea. I've lived here my entire adult life. But I have taught high school here in the public schools, and every kuhio day I have a set piece. I'm an English teacher. I was an English teacher. But I would just say, when it came up, does anyone know who this man is? And uh, these are sophomores and juniors in high school. And most do not. They don't know the story. They know it's a day off. So as far as history goes, history is tricky wherever you go. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. It seems to be not important to a lot of people. And yet, of course, someone like me, a, a nerd, a history nerd, thinks it's extremely important. But there you go. Even here, sadly, we have a lot of ignorance on, on our own history. The process that you went through when you were writing the book, did you do all the research up front and then write the book, or did you kind of do it simultaneously? Were you writing and researching at the same time? I think I did some of it simultaneously, but I did probably most of the research first. And in the researching, I did it with an eye toward a piece of fiction. So there are some scenes that I knew I had to have. So certain battle scenes, for example, and other scenes... And I would make notes that I've got to do this. But one thing I did do was run through the entire thing one time, which is what I do. And then a couple of years of rewriting. I mean, that's how English teachers teach you to write, you know, first draft. (laughs) So the draft was, I had to get to the end of it first. And I think they were, it was probably a semi-simultaneous, particularly I had to leave large blanks. I didn't know too much about 18th century sailing. I didn't know too much about Hawaiian canoes and how some of them were changed the western sails they were altered you know with young's input things like that where i needed to go to bishop museum i need to really nail down certain things that i really needed that were left blank in the initial manuscript i think you did a really good job with the details when it came to the language when it came to terminology i had never heard of a bosun before i read this book (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just small details the presence of amahu on the canoe I think is something that we've probably never read before. Where did that attention to detail come from? I think it's just from my reading. You know the book Shogun mm-hmm. by Clavel? Yeah. That was a famous book more in, in my generation maybe than yours. Writers steal. And one of the things I stole from that book, if you think about that book, you have the Gaijin guy, a Haole guy, thrown into completely foreign culture. Has to learn the language, is forced to learn the language, has a relationship with a female. It's this classic plot. And in it, Clavel actually went out of his way to teach you some Japanese. By the time you're done with that 1,000-page book or whatever it is, you know some Japanese. He's folded it in seamlessly. And then you think when you're reading it, wow, you know, that's very artless. I I wonder, you know, he he seemed to do that so easily. And then I took that book apart several times and realized it's not artless. It was deliberate and a really tricky thing. 
quite frankly, that that particular book really helped me. And I think that that is what writers do. They, you know, you don't come up with everything original. You come up with stuff that's worked before and try to make it work for you. Thanks so much for your time, Kevin. Thanks a lot, Russell. Appreciate it. That was Oahu resident and author Kevin William O'Leary talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. O'Leary's self-published novel, Olohana, In Service of the King, is available now on Amazon and at Hawaii's public libraries. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from the U.S. Coast Guard about the recent bust of some $3 million worth of fireworks. We'd love to hear what you think. Got an illegal fireworks story to share with us? Sound off with us. Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. And a reminder, all of our shows are archived so you can listen back at your convenience. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 